0: Okay, we're in Deuteronomy 32. I will uh, we'll go ahead and go over the questions for chapter 32 first, and then we'll get into the text in just a moment. First question says, What characteristics are ascribed to God? What characteristics do we see there in the first five verses or so? Righteousness, truthfulness. Okay. Righteous, faithfulness. He is just and right and perfect. How far back in their history does this song refer to? To the
1: very
0: beginning of it. To the very beginning. Even goes back further than Abraham, I think, in the thoughts that are are, uh, described here. Physically, what became of Jacob in verse 15? They became fat, waxed fat, and he forsook God. Would God overlook their spiritual adultery? What would he do? What's described? He says, once they forsake me, what's he going to do? I will do something with my face. Hide my face. We talked about that a little bit last week as well. Hide my face. The Lord hopes that they would consider what? their latter end, verse twenty-nine of that chapter deuteronomy thirty-two this is a song of moses and uh... as we talked about last week this song if you go back to chapter thirty one verse nineteen god directed moses to write this song down, that it might be a what against the people remember that word witness against the people we found at the end of chapter thirty-one that there were three witnesses that the song would be a witness in verse 26, that the book of the law would also be a witness against them, and that the even earth and heaven itself would be an additional witness. So we've got three witnesses in that chapter. Verse 28 uh, is earth and heaven, heaven and earth. So God directed him to write this song down that it would be a witness against him. Now let's read verse 1. Give ear, ye heavens, I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. There he brings that idea up that we saw in verse 28 of the previous chapter. The earth and the heavens. Give ear, heavens, and earth, and I will speak. My doctrine will drop as the rain, my speech will distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender grass. What we're doing here in these verses is God's directing us, as he says in verse 3, to ascribe greatness. Ascribe greatness unto our God. Notice in verse 4, the rock. He will mention this term several times in this chapter, the rock. And actually he's going to to talk about the rock and that which is not a rock in contrast to their gods. And uh, you'll see that several times in this chapter The rock, verse 4, something very stable. We understand a rock being something very stable. You know, when I think about rock in, in biblical terms like this, I think about Stone Mountain. If you've ever been to Stone Mountain, an exposed rock is there. And has that rock changed in how many years? It's just the same, isn't it? That rock is firm. And I think about when the Bible uses terms like that for the rock, I think about uh, something I can relate to like that. Stone Mountain, Georgia. That rock there is exposed and it can be seen from miles and miles away. You go to, get on top of it, try to move that rock, that would be impossible, wouldn't it? Now let's continue. The uh, last part of verse 4, I want to highlight this uh, attribute here that we've talked about in previous weeks about God. Uh, uh, hopefully your version, the last part of verse 4, says, says just and right. We've talked about the idea of justice and righteousness. Some of the versions don't use that word justice and righteousness, but find one that does and then find how many times you see that word, those two words coupled together in the Old Testament in particular. Just and right is he. we talking about God. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are not his children. Verse 5. It is their blemish. They are a perverse and crooked generation. So <clears throat> we come down to their what is going to be described as their inception here, beginning of verse 7 and 8. Remember the days of old, verse 7. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, he will show thee, your elders, and he will tell thee. They will tell thee. For well, the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance when he separated the children of men he set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel when I read the middle part of verse 8 it reminds me of Acts 17 where Paul talked about the God gave the nations their bounds of their habitation he set their habit, their borders if you will he determined where they would be <clears throat> and yet even does today so he set the bounds of the peoples and at that time, <clears throat> excuse me, according to the number of the children of Israel, we see God had a plan for a chosen people. And I think we could probably go back to, in our Bibles to, to the time of Genesis 10, Genesis 11, where we, we, we're after the flood, and we're after the time of the Tower of Babel, the nations are scattered. And then at the end of chapter eleven, lo and behold, God is bringing about Abraham, and is going to make a chosen people out of him. We could probably go back that to that chapter and refer to that on in this text here. So he found him in verse ten in a desert land, in a waste, in the waste howling wilderness. He compassed him about. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Notice in verse, last part of verse 10, the apple of the eye is something we protect, something that is very precious to us. We protect our eyes from being harmed by putting up our arms and, and our uh, eyelids and everything we can get to protect our eyes, don't we? God is protecting his people in that way. He's, he's protecting them at all costs. He keeps him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle that stirreth up her nest, that fluttereth her wing, or flutter over her wing, or young. He spread about his wings, he took them, bare them on his pinions. The Lord alone did lead him, and there was no get this foreign God with him. There was no God. So again, we're seeing in this chapter, God is wanting this song to be a witness against them. And we're already seeing this idea brought up that we've talked about over and over, what was the big problem from the time they go into the land of Canaan until the time they go into captivity, what is their, by large, their greatest issue? It's idolatry, isn't it? And we're already seeing that God is highlighting that here in the song. Verse 12. Go on down to verse 15. The, the verses in between, verse 13 to 14, describe the great blessings that God gave them. In verse 15, he uses a poetical term here. Uh, might be considered a nickname, Jeshurun. Waxed fat. Jeshurun is uh, termed or defined in some books, that which is upright. There are some that would include the idea upright and blessed. I like that inclusion because that is on the heels of what we've seen. Verse 13 and 14, they were so blessed that they were able to wax fat, verse 15, and what they did when they waxed fat was what? Did they further obey God? Did they, did they increase in maturity? They kicked, didn't they? They rebelled. They forsook God. Verse 15, Thou art wax fat, thou art grown thick, thou art become sleek. Then he forsook God who made him. So God is prophesying here foretelling of a time when this would take place. Uh, they moved him to jealousy with verse 16 says, strange what? Strange God, so we see again the contrast between the rock that is the real rock and that which is no rock at all. God wants them to know. Look in particular, verse 17, they sacrificed unto demons which were no God, to gods that they knew not, to gods that came up out of, of late which your fathers didn't even know. Your fathers didn't fear these gods because they hadn't even heard of these gods before. Of the rock, verse 18, that begat thee, thou art unmindful and has forgotten God that gave thee birth. He was there in your the days of your inception, the early days. God knew you. Now, verse 19, God saw it and He abhorred them because of the provocation of His sons and daughters. And He said, what would He do in verse 20? He would hide His face. Is this term ever good? When we think about our relationship with God, is the fact that God hides His face from us, is that good at all? Not at all. It's telling us that God's not showing His favor to us. But He blessed them in verse 13 and 14. He blessed them tremendously. But now, God has hid His face and is not showing favor upon his people verse 20 says i will see what their end shall be for their perverse generation so god hides his face verse 20 now let's go on down to verse 26 in the chastisement of his people that occurs in verse 21 through 25 god's going to chastise his people. And it's to such an extent that there is consideration given. Verse 26. I said I would scatter them afar. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men. But there's one thing that's holding him back in this particular text, and that is what?
1: Their enemies would think that it was because of them, not
0: God. Verse 27. Verse 26 says, I could scatter them, could, in in our language, we might say, wipe them out. I might wipe them out completely. But there is consideration, God says, that needs to be given for the enemy. Were it not that I fear the provocation of the enemy, lest their adversaries should judge wrongly, lest they should say, Our hand is exalted, and the Lord hath not done all this, we were able to overcome the israelites on our own they didn't they wouldn't attribute that to god god foretells a time when that would occur so they're not is this the end of their history no it's not god is not going to end their history at this point we see that again this is prophetic in verse 28 and 29 he says oh that they were Verse 29, Oh, that they were wise, that they would understand this, that they would consider their latter end. They would understand what I've done. Notice again the rock in verse 20, 30. The rock again in verse 31, especially the, there's a contrast here in verse 31. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. There's a contrast of two different types of rock, if you will. The false rock, false God, and the true rock. God's vengeance is described here in the song, verse 35. Vengeance is mine, says God, and recompense at the time when their foot shall slide. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that are to come upon them shall make haste. So we see God's vengeance. God's vengeance is His and His to meet out when He sees fit. We're warned in the New Testament not to take our own vengeance in Romans 12. That is only for God to take at His selected time. Verse 36, the Lord will judge His people and will repent Himself for His servants when He sees what take place. he sees his people and he sees that what kind of condition are they in? In verse 30 uh, verse 36 their power is they're powerless aren't they? Their power is gone God changes and here we see the compassion of God God's compassion to verse 36. Verse 37, he will say, where are their gods, the rock? Notice that idea, the contrast we talked about at the beginning, the gods, the rock and no rock, the God and no gods. Notice again there in verse 37. Where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. Where are they? Can they help them now? Can't help them at all now, can they? Never could help them, really. We know that, don't we? Those gods never could help them. But now hopefully they are seeing that. Now let's go on down to verse... uh, As it continues, he talks about all the the vengeance that he would meet out that is his, that he is just in doing so. And then we come to verse 43. Now don't forget this is a song. Sometimes I think we we read the text like this and we forget that it's a song, even though it may be handy in your Bibles, it's written out in verse style, poetic fashion, like some of the Psalms are, so it's kind of easy for us to see that. But even, even at that, sometimes we read this and we don't really understand and appreciate it that it's a psalm. But verse 43. Verse 43, we're seeing all of these things that God has done for them. God has blessed them. They forsook God. And then in verse 43, seems to me like turns very quickly and swiftly. It <clears throat> says, rejoice, O ye nations, with His people for he will avenge the blood of his servants, he will render vengeance to his adversaries, and he will get this, he will make atonement for his land and his people. That's a concept that we're familiar with, isn't it? Atonement, he will make atonement. Something in order for his people to be restored, there has to be an atonement. So, verse 43, I think, has significant New Testament flavorings that we would understand and appreciate—not simply for them, but I think it certainly has uh, messianic overtones to it. Verse 43 again: "I will make atonement for the land and for the people." So, there's a restoration there, all because God's, because of God's compassion. And he sees the condition that they're in, that they're hopeless, they're helpless. And he extends his mercy and his grace in atoning for those sins. In verse 42 and verse 43, if you care to go do some further study, Romans 15, verse 10, we'll combine this thought in talking about the Jew and the Gentile that are combined together together in the law of Christ and bringing both together he quotes this idea there by saying both are to benefit of the favor of God of the atonement of God Romans 15 verse 10 talks about that idea and actually if you think about Romans 14 and 15 talks about the things that that are some things God hasn't revealed some differences that have come up between brethren, in, and he extends that in chapter fifteen, and then at the end of or at this point in chapter fifteen, verse ten, Romans fifteen, verse ten. He's bringing up the idea that both Jew and the Gentile are, are alike in the law of Christ, teaching us that lesson, and it's the same kind of lesson here as in this chapter, verse forty-three. He's not only He went all the way from the inception, even before the inception, rather, of His people Israel, and by the time we wind up at the end of the song, we've included the nations. Verse 43, O ye nations. When He says that in the Old Testament, we're looking at all the nations, Jews and the Gentiles alike. We're looking at everyone. So God's looking far beyond the nation of Israel, isn't He? to the today, to the new covenant. I want you to think about this song as a song, and just imagine, if you will, that we sing this song in an assembly. Thought question here, what type of feeling does this song have to you? No particularly right or wrong answers, but what what type of feeling would this song have if it were sung in an assembly. Just an overall feeling. Our reliance
1: on God. I'm sorry? Our reliance on
0: God. Mm Mm-hmm. Our reliance on God. Notice uh, of all these here that are listed here, how much God has done. God is saying, I want this song to be a witness. Let's just go down the list. In light of that comment, Jacob, I knew you in your infancy. I found you in the wilderness. I blessed you and you, Jeshurun, you waxed fat. Now here's what we, the people of God, did in verse 15. Jeshurun forsook God. That's what we did. Then he goes and continues here. All the rest of these are what God has done. God hid His face. He chastised them. He didn't end their history. He didn't, he left a remnant. He took his vengeance upon them. We see God's compassion on them. We see God's atonement. So again, I think we see what it, it shows really what God has done. And it's not necessarily a very uplifting, very jubilant song to sing, is it? It uh, If you were an Israelite and you were singing this song, I think it would probably uh, admonish you very strongly. I think it would probably step on your toes. But God wanted them to sing it. So why would God want them to sing such a song as that? Okay, speak up for me just a little bit. Remind them of his mercy. Remind them of his mercy. We need to be reminded of that, don't we? Some, sometimes I think we need to sing more songs that admonish us, really admonish us strongly about, you know that in Colossians 3 verse 16, we're, we're told to admonish one another in song. That admonish uh, is the idea of a very strong uh, rebuke. And again, that's meant to motivate, isn't it? It's meant to inspire the people. Not to discourage them, but to motivate them to obedience. And I think that's what God is doing here. In the last paragraph here, Moses' last words, the last words of preaching, I guess you could say. Verse 46, he said unto them after he sung, presented the song to them, Moses said, Set your heart unto all the words which I testify unto you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe, all the words of this law. For it is no vain thing for you, because it is your life. And through this thing you shall prolong your days in the land, whether you go over to the Jordan to possess it. This makes us remember what we saw in chapter 30. Chapter 30, verse 19, he ended that section by saying there's two ways, life and death. Choose life. Again, Moses here in verse 46 says, set your heart, set your mind. Colossians 3 tells us to set our mind. This is the idea of setting our heart. Moses says, set your heart unto all the words that I have told you since we've been in the... Plains of Moab. Set your heart to do that. Verse 47, can you feel that emphasis? Moses is about to die. He's on his deathbed. He says, set your heart on this. It is your life. It is your life. It's not part of your life. It's not a segment of your life. It's not a little area here that you take care of one day a week. It is your life, he's saying. And by the, by this you'll prolong your days in the land that you go to possess. Then Moses is directed to go up into the mount, Mount of Abiram, Mountain of Abiram, the Mount Nebo. Uh, the Abiram Mountain, we might call a, a range of mountain. Mount Nebo is the mountain. And then the peak of that mountain is what you might know of from chapter 34 is Pisgah, Mount Pisgah. Some different, even songs and different times we see those referred to as all part of the same thing. But Mount Pisgah is the, the peak. Nebo is the mountain. And the range of mountain is the Abiram mountain area. Verse 49, get up into the mountain of Abram. You will die there. Go up and be gathered unto your people, verse 50. This, by the way, is one of those places where you could go to understand the phrase gathered unto thy people, which means a spiritual thing. It doesn't mean that you will be buried in your family cemetery as uh, the cave of Machpelah or such uh, as that. Gathered unto your people here. We could go back to Aaron as well. But particularly here, we see it applied to Aaron and Moses both. So what is gathered unto his people mean? That means he's going to that abode that is a spiritual abode beyond this life for those that are die in the Lord, if you will, not to the family cemetery. Verse 51, you must go there, you must die because you trespassed against me in the midst of the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, because you sanctified me not in the midst of the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 4 that we read several weeks earlier. Deuteronomy 4, verse 21. He says, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes. For your sakes. What would be the benefit for the children of Israel if they go into the land of Canaan and they leave Moses behind and they know the reason for which it took place? How would that benefit the people of Israel?
2: should have been an
0: object lesson to treat God as, as holy. Lest I fall under the same condemnation. We look at Moses here and he suffered the consequences of his actions of not glorifying God at that day when he smote the rock as he did. Actually, didn't glorify God in, in front of all the people. God said you must die at Mount Pisgah for their sakes, for their benefit. It was going to benefit them spiritually to know that they left behind the leader that had been with them for 40 years and that was not going to get to go to the land of Canaan for his sin. And indeed, it was a hard thing for Moses. We can see that by the way he expressed it throughout this book. It was difficult for him. But it was for the good, the greater good, of the influence upon the people that we cannot trans- transgress God's laws and take them lightly. Any thoughts on chapter 32? Yes.
1: I was thinking about the, describing God as the rock. If you've ever had. Uh, foundation problems on your house, people that repair that, what they'll do is put a steel piling under that foundation. They'll drive it down into the ground until it hits what they call refusal. And what that means is it went down far enough to hit bedrock. And once it hits bedrock and that's under your foundation, it's not going to move anymore. It's solid, it's steady, it's unchangeable, it's dependable. And God is all of those things. That's why Jesus used that in that parable in Matthew chapter 7. Man, he hears these words of mine and does them. It's like man who built his house on the rock. On the rock. It's not going to change. It's fa- you may be unfaithful, but God is never unfaithful. He's unchanging.
0: Immovable and faithful, which is one of those characteristics he described in the early part of this chapter. Any other thoughts on chapter 32? Yes,
2: just to piggyback off what it's already been said but when you see a prophecy at a moment like this when the children of Israel are ready to enter into the land and he's prophesying of their rebellion and and, and so many times throughout this book where that kind of thing has already been mentioned what it brings to mind is a certain character of God that the children of Israel overlooked and, the, and they didn't fully grasp this and in the beginning of Hosea he was told go take a wife of whoredom not that she was already in that condition but it was an acted out prophecy of what would happen an acted out parable so to speak that he entered into a covenant he decided to dwell with people that he knew would be unfaithful to him and and it's uh, the kind of thing that none of us would do you wouldn't make a deal with someone that you knew would default on it. But that's the part of the the character of God that He knew man would fail and be in dire need of His grace, and He entered into a covenant anyway.
0: He made all the provision that we needed when that happened, did Even to go back to Genesis 3, verse 15, we understand that when man fell, God had a plan, didn't He? He knew exactly what He would do to provide for those needs when they did fall. Okay, let's go to chapter 33. What is the blessing of Judah? First question is what is the blessing of Judah? their voice and would help them, of Levi. Quite an extensive list for Levi. They would have the Urim and Thummim. They would teach Israel. And uh, what tribe is missing from the blessings? Simeon. And why is Israel said to be happy? All right, chapter 33. As patriarchs do, on their deathbed, they would extend blessing to their children. Moses here, in a figurative sense, being their patriarchs in some respects, is giving them blessing. And in also some respects, we could say that Moses is uh, the testator. And once the testator dies, the covenant is in effect. Certainly the covenant is in effect already, but the laws that Moses has given, there are certainly some parallels I think we can draw from that example of a patriarch dying, extending the blessings. Uh, The New Testament talks about that, the death of a testator, then the new covenant takes uh, effect verse 30 or chapter 33 verse 1 this is the blessing wherewith moses the man of god blessed the children of israel before his death and he said that the lord came from sinai rose from mount seir unto them he shined forth from mount paran he came forth from the ten thousands of holy ones he loveth the people all his saints in verse 3 are in thy hand they sat down at thy feet moses commanded us a law verse 4 now we begin in verse 6 with Reuben. Reuben is was at one time the, the firstborn and certainly was the firstborn of the children. And you would go back and probably want to compare this chapter to Genesis chapter 49. Jacob blessed his sons in Genesis 49 and, and those first three, Reuben, Simeon, and uh, Levi, are mentioned there. And we see the sins of Reuben and Simeon, and then we also see that in that chapter, Judah is blessed. Genesis 49. Somewhere in that chapter, I can't remember the verse, but it says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. It's a very significant idea that Jacob says to his children. The scepter shall not depart. The rule. Judah would become the ruling tribe at some point in the future. Here, for the most part, we, we see some condemnation Jacob gives to his children in Genesis 49. This chapter, we don't see so much of the condemnation of those sons. We see more just general, general blessings given to them. Uh, Judah, verse 7, this is the blessing of Judah. And he said, hear the Lord, the voice of Judah, and bring him into his people with his hands. He contended for himself, thou shalt be a help against his adversaries. Uh, the, there are two particular tribes that we want to focus on as we go through not only this chapter, but as we go through the rest of the Old Testament. There's two particular tribes as we go through, if you will, the entire Old Testament that we're particularly interested in because we want to make sure those two tribes and their genealogies are intact. What two tribes are they? Judah and Levi. For a couple of different reasons. In order for the Christ to come, we have to have a nation of chosen people, a nation of priests that are serving God through a priestly tribe. So therefore, we have to have the tribe of Levi continue. We also have to have Judah continue because Christ comes through the lineage of Judah, right? Those are the two that we want to always focus on and at the end of the captivity, lo and behold, what two tribes have their genealogy intact? I'll give you a hint.
2: <laughs>
0: Judah and Levi. Uh, Judah and Levi. Isn't that interesting? How did that happen? Power and the providence of God. Power and the providence of God. But I always focus on those two. Now verse uh, 8, Levi. And of Levi, he said, Thy Thummim and Urim are with thy godly one, whom thou didst prove at Massah. The Urim and Thummim is something they wore when they would seek God for additional help to understand where they, what they should do. Think about it this way, the law of Moses directed them specifically which way to go. When it came to a matter that was outside the realm of the law of Moses, they would need to seek help from God to know which way to go. And that's when they would rely upon the Urim and Thummim. We don't know a lot about that, how that worked. But the priest would use this as they would go before God to ask his uh, help. He continues talking about the Levi, that they were to be teachers of the law as well. They would teach the law. So they had some very strong and very serious responsibilities that they would serve. Benjamin, you will notice in verse 12, he said, Benjamin, you will dwell in safety covered him, uh, he covered him all the day long, he dwelleth between his shoulders. Benjamin would be one of those tribes that would be basically swallowed up by Judah, would be next to Judah, would be swallowed up, uh, taken care of, if you will, by, by Judah. Joseph begins in verse 13 and continues all the way through verse 17 and we are, as we look at Joseph, we're looking at for the most part, Ephraim and Manasseh. You will see the ideas it presented here of the idea of fruitfulness. Uh, verse 14, the precious things are the fruits of the sun, the precious things are the growth of the moons, for the ancient mountains, and the precious things of the everlasting hills, the precious things of the earth. All these blessings, all these fruitful blessings and when you think about the idea of fruitful think about the idea or think about the name Ephraim that's what that name means and they are verse 17 says they are ten thousands of Ephraim two very prominent tribes that would become in the land of Cana they are the ten thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh and for sake of time we'll not go uh, into the rest of these Zebulun, Issachar, Gad, Dan, Naphtali, and Asher. Now let's go on down to verse 26. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. He ends this section by saying, There is none like unto thee, God, O Jeshurun, who rideth upon the heavens for thy help. It is excellency on the skies. There is no God like you. Verse 29, Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee. So he's saying, there is no God like you, God. There are no people like unto you, Israel, verse 29. This would make us think of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. He ended that chapter by a discussion of two pathways, life and death. Deuteronomy 4, verse 32, he began a discussion saying, is there any such people, that have had any such God that has done so many things for them as your God has done for you? And Moses ends the blessing here by saying that same thing. If you remember when we talked about Deuteronomy 4, it's a little uh, nutshell of the book of Deuteronomy. Take Deuteronomy 4 and we could say that's really a summary of the book of Deuteronomy. And here at the end, he's recalling that idea verse 26 there is no god like you verse 29 there is no people like you O israel who have such a god who are saved by the lord he's the shield of your help the sword of your excellency thine enemies shall submit themselves unto thee and thou shalt tread upon their high places any thoughts on chapter 33 Alright, let's end with chapter 34. We'll go straight into the text here. Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto Nebo to the top of Pisgah. That is over against Jericho. The Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah unto the western sea, now the south and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of the palm trees. So Moses gets to see all that his eye can see at a very good vantage point. The great land, the fruitful land, the land that God swear, verse 4, unto Abraham. So we're going from this point all the way back to Genesis 12. Remember those three promises the land, the nation, and the seed promise? We are now seeing that nation, or that land promise rather, about to be fulfilled. We're just very much on the verge of seeing that promise fulfilled. Verse 4 This is the land, God says, which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither one more reminder you can see it but you cannot go there so we're going back to Genesis 12 this promise is now fulfilled Moses died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab over against Beth Peor no man knows of his sepulchre of his grave unto this day what kind of condition was Moses in at the point that he climbed the mountain, <clears throat> and his eye was not dead? What kind of physical condition was he apparently in? So Moses didn't die, as we've already alluded to. He didn't die because he was so old and in bad health, did he? I think sometimes that you know to trek a mountain like this would take pretty good health anyway, wouldn't it? His eye was not dim and His power was not diminished. So why did He die? We go back to the question that we hopefully answered earlier. Why did He die? For the benefit of the people of God. For their sakes. Deuteronomy 4, verse 21 says it was for your sakes. Moses was 120 years old. In verse 7, His eye was not dim. His natural force not diminished or abated. The children of Israel wept for him 30 days. Joshua took his place. Joshua was a man that was full of the spirit and wisdom. There is what we saw last week and this week is a pretty much a seamless transition from Moses to Joshua. Verse 10, there is not arisen a prophet in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. This is also tied in very well with Deuteronomy 18. There's a prophet, Moses says, there's a prophet like me that will come one day and to him shall you hearken. Deuteronomy 18, we saw that. And it's not fulfilled until Christ. To the Book of Acts, Chapter Three. Moses indicates here, or is the prophet that would be like no other prophet. There would never be another prophet like Moses until Christ Himself came. Maybe we get into some more of that next week. Next week we will do a review of the Book of Deuteronomy, a review of the entire book. So. Uh, we we'll look forward to that. I appreciate your your kind attention this evening.